0: Joshua chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. When King Jabin of Hazor heard this news, he sent a message to King Jobab of Madon, the kings of Shimron and Akshath, and the kings of the north in the hill country, the Aroboth south of Chinnareth, the Judean foothills, and the slopes of Dor to the west, the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, Hephthites, Perizzites and Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. They went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots. All these kings joined forces. They came and camped together at the waters of Merom to attack Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For at this time tomorrow, I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters of Mirab and attacked them. The Lord handed them over to Israel, and they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Mishrafah Maim, and to the east as far as the valley of Mista. They struck them down leaving no survivors. Joshua treated them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back, captured Hazor, and struck down its king with a sword, because Hazor had formerly been the leader of all these kingdoms. They struck down everyone in it with a sword, completely destroying them. He left no one alive. Then he burned Hazor. Joshua captured all these kings and their cities and struck them down with the sword. He completely destroyed them, as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites plundered all the spoils and cattle of these cities for themselves, but they struck down every person with the sword until they had annihilated them, leaving no one alive. Just as the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, Moses commanded Joshua. That is what Joshua did, leaving nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all this land, the hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the foothills, the Araba, and the hill country of Israel with its foothills, from Mount Halak, which ascends to Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon, He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. No city made peace with the Israelites, except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle, for it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated, just as the Lord... Commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites, except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua took the entire land, in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now through Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit that You would give us eyes to see Your glory, to see Your strength and Your might, See your wisdom and your righteousness. And see your mercy in Jesus Christ towards sinners. Help us to see this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning to the last battle for Israel and the conquest of Canaan. Joshua has led the Israelites over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. He has defeated Jericho, and Ai, they have made peace with the Gibeonites. Last week, we noticed how they defeated an alliance of five Canaanite tribes, and they then conquered most of southern Canaan. This week, the narrative turns to focus on the war in the north of the land. And so, we dealt with the southern campaign, now it's the northern campaign. And given the detailed account of the story so far... It's taken five chapters to talk about the war in the South. It's really not that surprising that this chapter only offers us a sweeping summary of the, frankly, very similar military actions in which Israel was engaged in the northern campaign. It is more of the same. And so as the author comes to these events, the narrative really picks up speed, even to the point where once you get to chapter 12, we really move out of narrative, and we just get lists and catalogs of these cities and these kings which have now been defeated by Joshua and by Israel. You know, we heard Joshua 11, verse 18. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. There's actually 31 of them listed in chapter 12. And based on a statement we get from Caleb later in chapter 14, we know this portion of the conquest took either five or seven years. It's one of the two, but either way, That's a long time to be at war as the nation of Israel. And then the book is going to launch us into chapters 13 to 21, where we have these detailed lists of the distribution of the land to the people. And then chapters 22 to 24 give us this final epilogue of them taking up residence in the land. So that's an overview of where we're at and where we're going. And not surprisingly, in this chapter, we see several of the same themes that we've already seen as we've been working our way through the book. And as we gather up some of those themes, again, this morning, my prayer for you has been that God would use this as the Apostle Peter describes, that he would wake you up with a reminder. These are things you've heard before if you've been with us. Maybe truth you've heard for a long time. So often what we need is not necessarily to hear something new, but to be reminded of what's true and that it's still true even today in the midst of whatever circumstances you may be facing even this morning. And so the big idea that I want to see this morning, the sermon in a sentence, is this. Because God has won the battle through Jesus and promised victory in the end, we can confidently wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which will invite conflict from God's enemies but bring peace to God's people. That's the main encouragement for us from God's Word this morning. Now I want to look at this passage under four themes. First, God is all-powerful. Second, God fights for His people. Third, God conquers His enemies. And fourth, God saves through Jesus. And if you were here last week, you might be thinking... Well, that main point and those four main sub-points sound a lot like last week's points. <laughs> well, you're not wrong, okay? Second verse, same as the first. But to paraphrase Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, to preach to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So first, God is all-powerful. The author sets this up beautifully by starting with the threat. In verses 1-5, through five. Jabin, king of Hazor, is the ringleader in yet another Canaanite alliance opposing Israel's advance. And just so we really feel the scale of the problem, the author takes his time to list out each king and every town and every nation involved in this anti-Israel coalition. And with each name, we are meant to picture in our minds another element of this growing army of opposition, each with their flags flying in the breeze, proudly gathered to fight Israel. Verse 4 says, they went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots. They've got the cavalry and the chariots. They are equipped with the most powerful weapons of their day. And Israel could feel nothing close to that kind of firepower. And so the author spends these opening verses detailing the enormity of the challenge facing Israel at this point in the conquest. He piles up problems in these verses, doesn't he? You can imagine Joshua right, watching this unfold. Another one joins the ranks, you know, seeing the size and the power of the enemy grow and grow, of all the enemy forces arrayed against him. And maybe he begins to fear. But it's at this point, you know, once the enemy horde has been fully cataloged, In all of its intimidating vastness that we read the Lord's comforting command. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For at this time tomorrow, I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. God looks at that vast multitude and almost with a shrug, as it were, says... I've got this. At this time tomorrow, I'm going to hand them all over to you slain, Joshua. It's Psalm 2, isn't it? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His Anointed One. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. These verses are meant to help us see not so much the dimensions of the spiritual opposition as to see the scale of God's sufficiency in answering it. God is not intimidated by the enemy. He is not daunted by the difficulty facing his church as as we seek to advance his gospel in the world. And you can itemize the fearful powers of evil today and all of their malice. And were we to face them in our own strength, we would rightfully tremble. But the Lord is sufficient in His abundant grace for the fight ahead. The Lord has set His keen on Zion, His anointed one. Joshua Second, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns. And all the petty rulers of the earth and all the supernatural forces of evil and the heavenly places are no match for Him. Friends, do you appreciate the limitless power of God? These opening verses are the Old Testament equivalent of John 16 33, where Jesus says to us, In this world, you will have tribulation. That's the bad news. Like the first five verses tribulation is coming. Look at that army chariots and horses and nation after nation. In this world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus says, I have overcome. Don't let the truth that God is all-powerful grow dim in your view of life and reality. Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. God is never overwhelmed. He's never overpowered. He's never overworked. He's never intimidated. He's never confused. He never faces an opponent he can't defeat, a problem he can't solve. He never lacks the resources to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. Psalm 115, 2-3, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Reminded, again, of the limitless power of God. And this is so good for us to be reminded of. Maybe you find yourself reading headlines. Or maybe you find yourself responding to more personal challenges in your own life. And the issues, the opposition, the needs, the weight of responsibility, all of it comes together. And you just think, it's too big. It's too complex. It's overwhelming. It's too powerful. It's more than I could ever manage or handle or overcome. Maybe it's the general trajectory of our nation. Maybe it's the stress of being... In a work environment that consistently seems to glory and reward sinful behavior and mock those who would seek to live in godly ways. Or maybe it's at the personal level, not knowing how you're going to make ends meet. Feeling like you don't have what it takes as a young mom to get through day after day. Bearing responsibilities that are confronting you with the sheer limits of your own capacity and your own strength. Or, or maybe you're confronted with the indwelling power of your own sin. And you look internally and you recognize, I have desires, and I have inclinations, and in so many ways, it can almost seem beyond my own control. And so whether it's the biggest issues of the day, the personal needs of the moment, or the reality of our own sin, it's easy to feel intimidated or even to feel hopeless. But one of the lessons we learn from this conquest is that God consistently leads His people into battles that are greater than they themselves could ever fight in and of themselves. And why does he do that? It's by design. He does this so that he might display the glory of his own limitless limitless power so that we might trust in him and not trust in ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God is all-powerful. But more than this, and this is our second point this morning, that powerful God fights for His people. These amazing displays of God's power are being pointed in a particular direction. God fights for His chosen, redeemed people. Not because they're righteous and the nations aren't, but because they have received His mercy and His covenant. And so He fights for them. God wields His power for their good, for their benefit, for their protection, for their provision. That's the conclusion at the end of the book when Joshua is giving his final charge to the people of Israel after they've completed their conquest. He says in chapter 23, verse 3, Ye have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. And so verses 7 through 8 tell us that, of course, the battle goes exactly as the Lord had promised that it would. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters of Miram and attacked them. The Lord handed them over to Israel, and they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Mishrafoth, Maim, and to the east as far as the valley of mizpah They struck them down, leaving no survivors. Now notice, the fact that God fights for his people and wins battles that we could not win in ourselves does not mean that we therefore drift. Into passivity. When Israel heard God's promise to defeat their enemies, they did not wait in passivity. They acted with proactive courage. As Dale Ralph Davis notes, verses 6 through 7 contain an implicit recognition of the energy in God's sovereignty. In verse 6, Yahweh gives his sovereign assurance I will hand them all over to you, slain. In verse 7, Joshua and Israel blast into the enemy camp in surprise attack. Right, God's sovereignty does not negate human activity, but stimulates it. Right, we we frequently look at the teaching of divine sovereignty too simplistically. Some say that if God ordains something as certain, it renders human effort irrelevant. Let go and let God. But Joshua knew better. His view was not to let go, but to grab hold. J. I. Packard, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, he says this, Souls that cultivate passivity do not thrive, but waste away. The Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but trust God and get going. We are not to passively let go and just let God, but to let God lead us, and then we say let's go. Let's trust Him who's going to fight our battle for us, and then we go. Fight. That's what Israel did. They fought. And clearly God was the one who won the battles. And so we trust the Lord to fight as He promises. And then we fight the fight of faith. We fight to trust God with our lives when our circumstances would tempt us to doubt him and his faithfulness. We fight to live in obedience to the Lord when the world is pushing so hard the other way. We fight to kill the remaining sin in our lives. We fight to stand firm against real evil in the world. We fight to proclaim the truth of the gospel to all the nations of the world which takes effort and earnestness and commitment and perseverance. We fight to proclaim that gospel and make disciples of all nations and we do so believing that the Lord himself fights for us and will win the victory. Verse 9 gives us another glimpse of how God's Sovereignty relates to our responsibility. Did you notice the odd little note about hamstringing the horses and burning the chariots with fire? It seems a bit excessive. Why in the world would they do that? I mean, it sure sounds like Israel could have used a few more horses and chariots in their supply to help them in their fight. Why would they burn these chariots instead of using them? Why would they put the horses out of action? Well, here's the reason. The Lord wants His people to be able to sing Psalm 20, verse 7, with all of their hearts. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, verse 17 says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. You know, prior to coming here, I pastored in the D.C. area in northern Virginia. And church planning there is really slow, really difficult work, in part because it's a very wealthy community. everything Everyone has everything they could need, right? There are no vulnerabilities, no weaknesses. People are well-educated, well-resourced, affluent, self-sufficient. And so they think to themselves, what use do I have for Jesus? you hear how wise God is in giving this instruction to Joshua and to Israel. It puts a ways and temptation for his people to rest in their own strength, in their own sufficiency, in their own resources, and say, we are competent for every challenge. Why would we need the Lord? He's making certain that they trust him and cling to his power, promised to them in his faithfulness. Yet you know, sometimes God strips us of otherwise lawful resources. He even weakens us, leaves us less able not to hurt us, but to keep us resting on Him and not on ourselves, so that we can stay with each new challenge. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but here today, in the midst of this challenge, I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. And so I ask you this morning, are you trusting the Lord to fight for your good, Do you trust Him to fight the battles that you cannot win for yourself? But even more than that, do you trust Him to fight in the way that is truly best, according to His wisdom and not your own? You know, if you think the Christian life is primarily about working harder and fighting harder in order to win your battles for God, you do not understand the Christian life. The God of the Bible is the God who fights for His people. He fights their battles for them battles which they cannot ultimately win in and of themselves. And of course, this is most profoundly true in the cross of Jesus Christ. You might not think of the cross as a battle, or at least it seems like a strange way to win a battle. Jesus allowing himself to suffer execution by crucifixion. But it was a battle. And it was won in that way. Colossians 2, 14-15 tell us, by dying in the place of sinners, Jesus erased the certificate of of debt that was against us and opposed to us because of our sin. You and I could never defeat that by our own strength. And Jesus erased the record of our debt by dying in our place. But then Paul goes on to say, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him by securing our forgiveness and by breaking the power of sin in our lives through his own death resurrection, Christ disarms the spiritual powers that would seek to accuse us before the Lord. That would seek to take us captive. And in Christ, God fights for us, and He wins the battle that we cannot win for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God, the all-powerful God, fights for His people. But that brings us to our third point. God conquers His enemies. I realize as we read a text like Joshua 11, as we read a text like Revelation 19 that we read earlier, we hear how the Lord brings destruction and death upon all of His enemies. Now these are not lighthearted things, are they? The judgments that fall upon God's enemies in these texts, they're sober. They're terrible. And you read the refrain over and over in verses 10-15, through "...they struck down everyone in it with a sword." Completely destroying them, he left no one alive. And then verses 16 through 18 lists the victories of Joshua and his army, summed up in the opening line of verse 16 and the last clause of verse 17. So Joshua took all that land, he captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. There's the summary. The whole northern campaign has taken 17 verses to recount and two verses to summarize. And that might give us the wrong impression that Joshua pulled all of us off in one overwhelming ambush on one sunny afternoon. But again, verse 18 says, it's very sobering. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. This is years of hard fighting compressed into a handful of verses. But finally, God conquers all his enemies, every last one of them. The reason why it took such a long time is not to be looked for in the stubbornness of the Canaanite opposition, although, as verse 19 states, stubborn is an appropriate word to use for the Canaanites. None of them attempted, even so much as tried, to make peace with the Israelites, all except for the people of Gibeon. And the implication seems to be, had these Canaanites truly repented and cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord, they may very well have been spared but none of them did. None of them did. And the reason they didn't do it finds its ultimate explanation in the wrath of God working itself out in their midst. And when we see that, it really ought to make us all tremble. Look at verse 20 carefully. What's the explanation given to us for why it took so long for the conquest of Canaan? For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts, So that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That is a very sobering picture, isn't it? God hardened their hearts so that they would not repent, but remain stubborn and hostile in their sin, and therefore oppose the advancing kingdom of God and thereby be destroyed. That's what the text says. So where I think we need to guard our thinking here is that this is not God taking innocent people and hardening their hearts in order to judge them. Now, that is not what is happening here. This is often what is referred to as God's judicial hardening. God handing people over to their sin, confirming them in their own hardness, removing His restraining grace so that they are confirmed and their rebellion, and so that that further hardening is in itself a judgment for their sin. And remember, this comes after centuries, four hundred years, of Canaanite idolatry and wickedness. And just so we are clear, this is often how the wrath of God works itself out, even among us today. It's not usually in fire falling from heaven that we see His judgment, but in the heart that rejects His mercy quietly being hardened and unmoved to all pleas to change course and repent while there is still time. Think about the refrain that runs through Romans chapter 1. People exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Therefore, Paul says, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. God gives us up To the wickedness our hearts choose. And immersed in our own depravity, our hearts freeze hard in their settled opposition to Him. That is the wrath of God at work. He gives sinners over to their sin, and in their due course, He treats them as their sins deserve. So those are important considerations as we try to think rightly about God's righteousness in these judgments but it makes it no less fearful for those who are currently in rebelling against God. Don't assume that if you give yourself to sin and rebellion, you can just flip a switch. You don't know when you may move past the point of no return and experience God's judicial hardening that does eventually lead to final judgment. If it's true that God's limitless power is directed toward the good of His chosen and redeemed people in Christ, it is also true that it is finally directed against those who persist in the rebellion against them so that they will eventually be conquered and judged if they don't turn away from their sin and receive His salvation. So friends, if today you are living in conscious rebellion against Jesus Christ, do not think that because it has not rained fire down from heaven upon your head that you've gotten away with your sin and God doesn't see. No, what is going to happen is that soon if you do not repent, your conscience will stop bothering you. You will seek to care that you were brought up to know the commandments and the grace of God. You no longer even tried to nod at Christianity. You've chosen your sin above everything. And now your sin has blinded your eyes, stopped your ears, and fossilized your heart. Joshua 11, verse 20 makes it clear that if you would just repent, if you would just turn and seek mercy from Jesus, you would find it. But if you will not, one day you won't care to. And it will cease to occur to you that maybe you should. Those pangs of guilt that you feel right now, they're going to dwindle to a whisper if you don't listen to them. All too easily ignored until they are silenced completely. And God will give you over to the lusts of your heart, your dishonorable passions, and your debased mind. And so, dear friend, I'm praying for you today that you might hear this warning that your heart might awaken and stir and tremble, that your conscience might wake up and that you might flee for pardon. Forgiveness is what you need and you can get it from Jesus. So turn to Him today. Do not harden your heart if you hear His voice today, but come and find rest in Him. Turn to Him before it's too late and the Lord hardens your heart. What a fearful thing. The sovereign, hardening wrath of God. Let me ask one more question here. Is it right for Christians to rejoice that God conquers His enemies? Should we rejoice in the judgment that God brings upon His enemies? Well, clearly the biblical answer is yes. Revelation 19, 1 and 2, we read earlier, after this I heard something like the loud voice of a mass multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because... His judgments are true and righteous because He has judged the notorious prostitute who have corrupted the earth with her sexual morality and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. Notice what's emphasized there. We rejoice because God's judgments are true and just. We rejoice because He justly avenges the evil that is carried out against His servants. A vengeance that that we ourselves are not to take into our own hands But we trust God ultimately will. You know, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves quotes a Croatian theologian who says it took his own personal experience of the horrors of ethnic warfare to appreciate the goodness of God's wrath. And it's a longer quote, but I think it's worth reading. Here's what it says I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people, shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And so God's wrath against His enemies shows He cares. He cares about evil. He cares about what happens to his people. He cares that we might be able to one day enjoy a world where only righteousness dwells. And so we rejoice. We rejoice that God finally conquers every enemy that remains opposed to Him. My friend, if that's where you stand today, again, I would urge you to flee to His mercy, because it has been offered in Christ. But he will ultimately conquer those who remain opposed to Him. God is all powerful. And with that power, God fights for his people, God conquers his enemies, and then God saves through Jesus. What stands out so significantly in this chapter is the almost singular focus on the person of Joshua himself as God's anointed one, God's chosen servant through whom God wins these battles for Israel. We see with Joshua as we see with Noah, as we see with Abraham, as we see with Moses, as we see with David, that God delivers His people through a mediator, through a chosen servant, through a representative man who stands in for the people as a whole and represents them before God. Think about this. Who receives God's promises? Who fights for God's people? And who gives them their inheritance? It's Joshua. And we know through the revelation of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the true the greater, the final Joshua. Jesus is the one to whom Joshua was always intended to point. It's not even all that subtle. Je- Jesus is the Greek name for Joshua, the Lord saves. But in Jesus, God Himself, God the Son, becomes a man. Truly God. Truly man. So that He might be our saving representative, a mediator between us and our Heavenly Father. God saves through Jesus. Now, let me just sketch out briefly four Aspects of this saving work through his precursor, Joshua. Joshua believed God implicitly. R.C. Sproul points out that there is a great difference between believing in God and believing God. Many people will say they believe in God. right? They admit that He exists, but they do not believe Him. They do not believe what He says. But Joshua believed God, and like all heroes of the faith, he acted on that belief. God told him, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And he firmly expected God to defeat his enemies, and so he attacked them, anticipating victory. And church, that same trust marked our Lord Jesus. He has now come as our mediator, the representative of God's people once and for all, the one who receives God's promises. In fact, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. The one who fights for God's people, the one who conquers death, the one who wins eternal life and then freely gives it to God's people so that we may then enjoy everlasting rest in the eternal presence of God. That's because he believed God wholeheartedly. Second, Joshua obeyed God entirely. We see this throughout our text. Numerous verses, but look at verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, Moses commanded Joshua, That is what Joshua did, leaving nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What a remarkable statement. Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He was told, conquer Canaan. And so he did it, step by step, in obedience to God's commands. First Jericho, then Ai, then the cities of the south, then the cities of the north. Then he arranged the settlement described in the following chapters. Right, he did it all. No one could point to a single thing and say, Joshua, you forgot to do this. The task isn't finished. How great it would be if that could be the case with us. If no one could point to anything we had left undone, but instead to say, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded. Joshua is presented to us here as God's obedient servant through whom, through whose obedience through whose obedience Israel conquers. And certainly his example is a call for us to do likewise. But of course, obedient Joshua is much more here than simply an example, isn't he? He's a type, a picture of one to come who unlike us will be perfect and exhaustive in his obedience to the commands of God. Jesus left nothing undone. He completed all his Father's will for him so that as he takes his final breath we hear his victory cry it is finished he was obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross and beneath his perfect obedience all of our failures to obey are hidden and cleansed and pardoned the Lord Jesus makes conquest of sin and death and hell and secures the victory by becoming obedient for us through the one man's obedience Paul writes the many will be made we praise God for the obedience of Jesus. And we hide our imperfect obedience beneath His perfect obedience. For in His obedience, just like in Joshua's obedience, the people of God triumph. Third, Joshua destroyed the enemy completely. In verses 21 to 22, the author pauses just for a moment to linger over these unusually large, ferocious warriors known as the Anakim. And, of course, maybe the very mention of the Anakim probably doesn't send chills up your spine because you've never seen any of them. But they were the incredible hulks of the land of Canaan. Uh, They were mentioned in Numbers 13, verse 28, back when Moses sent Joshua and Caleb and the other spies across the Jordan to check out the land of promise. And one of the things that had those spies quaking in their boots was the presence of the Anakim. Only Joshua and Caleb had the faith to face them but it was too much for the rest of Israel who refused to enter the land at that time. Forty years before, says Del Ralph Davis, Israel was sure that even God's help was of no avail against these big bruisers. In Israel's dictionary, Anakim spelled terror. But now, verse 21, almost casually, as a footnote, says, Oh, and by the way, the giants in the land that keep Israel up at night, Joshua cut off from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Manah, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Which, by the way, is the first time so far that the land of Canaan has been named for the Israelites who have come to dwell there. It belongs to them now. But it belongs to them now only because our God is a giant slayer. Our God kills the Anakin. And friends, is there a greater giant slayer than Jesus? Greater than Joshua? Greater than David? What enemy is there that Jesus has not already decisively conquered? The world? John sixteen thirty three. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. The flesh? Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. The devil and his demons, Luke ten seventeen through 18 to 72, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. What about death? Acts 2, 23-24. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And when Jesus returns from heaven in power and glory, on the last day, he will completely destroy every enemy that opposes him. Revelation 20 says, The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will conquer all his enemies, and his people will rejoice at his just judgment. And then finally, Joshua gave the inheritance graciously. As the warfare comes to an end, a new word is introduced, inheritance. We read in verse 23, So Joshua took the entire land, in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses, Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. This word, inheritance, will occur nearly 50 times in the distribution of the land that Israel received. And so in the book as a whole, this verse serves as a hinge that turns us from the conquest of Canaan to the distribution of the land to Israel. Chapter 12 will summarize the conquest, starting in chapter 13, Israel. Will begin to get comfortable in the land that God has given to them as their inheritance. And so the warfare of Joshua foreshadows the work of Jesus. Jesus, in his earthly life, follows the course of Joshua, going to battle against the powers of darkness by means of obedience to God and his word. But Jesus defeated his enemies, not with the sword, but with the word of God. Jesus brought not bloody slaughter but a message of deliverance from death by his own bloody slaughter. Jesus went to Sidon, not to kill, but to heal. All the nations in the region came to Joshua to war with him. Those same nations came out to Jesus to find mercy. And how much in every way is Jesus greater than Joshua? Jesus gives us rest in him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, he invites us, and I will give you rest. What an inheritance. He is our inheritance. And truly, Jesus' ministry continues in His church today. We go into God's world and we encounter hostile forces. And yet, because Jesus has won the battle, and because He's promised victory in the end, we can go with confidence, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, preaching the Gospel. And that preaching will invite conflict but it will also bring salvation to those who have ears to hear. so, church, don't miss the relevance of this chapter. The warfare of Joshua anticipates the ministry of Jesus and the mission of the church. And therefore, it is not unrelated to our lives today. It prepares our hearts to trust God for His aid in our battles. It comforts us in the certainty of His final judgment. It trains our eyes to look to Jesus as our victory warrior. And so we may approach our daily battles this week not in fear, but in faith because we have such a great Savior. Let's pray again. Lord, we bow before You with great gratitude. We're thankful because the battle belongs to the Lord. How we thank you for what you have done for us. You have fought battles that we could never fight and win for ourselves. Thank you for conquering sin, for conquering death, for winning the right to eternal life by your righteousness. And Lord Jesus, you graciously gave your people an inheritance because of what you, our Lord and Savior, has done for us. May that be our trust. And as we trust you, may we not then be captives But trusting that you're fighting for us and we will win the victory and all glory will be yours. And how we pray for any here who are yet strangers to your rest. Lord, soften their hearts. Cause them to tremble at the prospect of your terrible wrath. And make them run for refuge to Christ who offers them mercy. For we ask this in Jesus' name.